Good morning, good morning, good morning, or good night. I have no idea. But welcome back to year three of the Miss Fisher Summer Reading Project book podcast assignment. Because you know what? It gets a little bit more creative every single year. And you know, freshman year, I went hard with that 30 minute standing. And then sophomore year, I gave up a little bit, hit that 15. This year, I think we're going to end up with like a solid nine at most. So buckle up for a lot of info all at once as we discuss Sherman Capaldi's In Cold Blood. Okay, so I'm literally using my Space Cat guide right now to make sure that I hit all of the required points. So let's start with the speaker. So Truman Quality actually is kind of revolutionary in the way that he wrote this. So fun fact, it is a nonfiction, but it's written kind of like a fiction. And the thing that makes this book so unique is that you can kind of see the perspective from both the murderer and the family that was murdered, or I guess I should say murderers. Um, and what I thought was kind of unique about the book is that we know from the get-go that they got murdered, but we don't really find out till the end how exactly they got murdered, like the timestamps and the details. So I think Capalti was pretty revolutionary in the way that he did this. Um, but there are several like actual speakers throughout the book, if that makes sense, and I'm guessing that they're based on direct quotes. Um, we hear from Dick, we hear from Perry. We hear from all the different clutters. We hear from townspeople. We hear from Detective Dewey. Um, And I think by giving that multiple perspectives feel, you kind of get the idea of not only those directly involved with the murder, but like the aftershock throughout the town. Those who may have known the family, those who know the detective, it goes into Detective Dewey's family, his wife, you know? Um, I thought that was pretty unique and really interesting to read about. Um, kind of kept you engaged through some of the slower bits of the book by kind of having that a little bit of that edge. Uh, yeah. Okay, so next up is purpose. I really felt that Capalti wrote this the way that he did. Um, I don't really think he thought about the fact that he was revolutionizing a genre that hadn't really even been tapped to in the way that he did yet. He took something such as like a nonfiction book that you kind of normally read and it's a little bit of a snore fest unless it's like really interesting and really, okay, we think about true crime today, you know, I almost feel like this was like the predecessor to like the modern true crime podcast where it's almost glamorized in a way, you know, we went from viewing these killers as like, you know, a national threat to now we have fangirls for Jeffrey Dahmer. I feel like that's kind of weirdly in a way traces back to this because, you know, when you're reading the book, I actually started to sympathize for Perry. And I wonder if Capalti actually wrote this to show that side of the murder, because there's obviously some type of backline issue that caused them to be the way that they are. And so I feel like not only did he do this to, for his own benefit, you know, as a final project, because this was the last thing that he wrote. He didn't die or anything. I think he might have died, but I think it was more recent. Like this was just kind of like the end of his career, like writing wise. Uh, But I feel like he wrote this as like a, this is it, you know, 
And the fact that he took six years of research to be able to produce this is absolutely insane. And I just think overall his purpose was to show a perspective of murder and true crime in a way that hadn't really been displayed before. And like I said, I think unintentionally he may have intended this, reinventing the genre of nonfiction as a whole as common media to be consumed, not necessarily in an academic setting, but just almost as entertainment in a way. Okay, so moving on to audience. So, kind of a tricky question, because it feels simple, but I feel like it's not. Which I'm sure my sister is so thrilled to hear me say. Um, But, of course, the general audience would be, of course, you as the reader reading the book. But you could also say, in a way, that the people he interviewed along the way could also qualify as the audience, because I'm sure... At some point, you know, maybe not necessarily before he talked to them to get a more authentic read, he eventually had to tell them maybe sides of the story they had never heard. And I think in a way, he may have, like, resolved some internal conflict between those that he did have to interview and research for this project. So not only would the audience be us, or maybe even someone who had looked at the case and, you know, found something new in, like, a occupational or detective type setting you know someone whose job is to look at things like that or us as students who analyze it for rhetoric and things along those lines but also those who were initially involved maybe learning something new about something they knew that they thought they knew so much about so I feel like the audience is a pretty varied group that can be defined as something other than just us as the reader Okay, now on to context. So I've kind of touched on this briefly already, but the book actually took six years to write. Um, I found some like weird stuff about it while looking it up, and I'm honestly not even going to go into that because I feel like I'd low-key lose points. But the book itself was published in 1966. However, the murders themselves happened in 1959. So, over the course between the initial murder, I think it's about a year after, he starts writing. And the book itself doesn't get produced until 1966, but he actually had to wait for Perry to get executed to finish the book. Which I think is absolutely insane that you write this book about a murder and then you are able to look the murder in the eye and go, so when do you get executed? Absolutely blows my mind in ways I can't even begin to describe. So, I mean, that's really all you can say about context. Um, Capote himself ends up developing kind of a deeper relationship with all those involved that he had to interview. And there was actually a thing that I just read, I'll be honest, like just now, about where they took like a transcribed version of the book to Perry in prison and it came back with a 98% accuracy um, is what they kind of summed it up to. So I think that's 
pretty insane just how down to the detail he was able to get it because he pretty much worked with this in real time. I mean, he had to wait for Perry to get executed to finish the book, which I think is absolutely just wild. So, the exigence. Why are we here? Well, there's a lot of different ways you can answer this question, and I feel like a lot of that comes from what we've already discussed with the purpose and the speaker and the audience and really the context of why he wrote this. But overall, I feel like it's a revelation. It's a story. It's a passion. And when you read the book, you can feel that passion and just how much had to go into it to be able to fully understand the love that you would have to do and how much it was a labor to get through this. I guess what I'm trying to say is a labor of love, but the words were just not going together. But anyhow, so it's a labor of love. Um, I think Capote wanted to end his writing career with a bang, and I don't think he necessarily knew that this was going to be it. But I think at some point when you're writing something this big and this different, you have to have some sort of knowing that this is it that it's going to be draining and you can't talk this. I mean, In Cold Blood, listen, it was a hard to start read. But I think that it's a really good work of literature. And I think that the exigence really just comes from the kind of where we here, comes from that passion and the drive that Capote had to write this book and to tell this story from start to finish in excruciating detail about something that was so different to write about the way he has. And like I've said before, he almost started what we know is like the modern true crime podcast in the way that he talked about these people like he knew them. Like it felt personal because it was. This is not something you could do overnight. It took six years of interview and waiting for these trials and watching as everything went down in real time. And I think that's that's what make this book so unique. And I think that is the why we're here. That is the exigence, is that labor of love and the way that Capote really put himself into this book, put these people's lives and their stories into writing so that it can be enjoyed. So the rest of the podcast is going to be absolutely chock full of spoilers. So if you're not really looking for that, go ahead and leave. But I don't know why you'd be listening to this unless you are in my English class. I think that's kind of weird. However, if you are doing your summer reading project, listen up because I understand not wanting to read. Sorry, Miss Fisher. Okay, so rhetorical choices and how they're related to Capote's life. So I feel like this one's not as obvious as maybe it presumes itself to be, but throughout the book, he reuses the phrase, the corner. And the corner may not be stated throughout the book as he means it towards the end of the book, where the corner is what they call pretty much, I guess, trying to figure out how to word this. It's kind of just... Where you get to put the death, you know, if you have the death penalty, 
go to the corner, you know? And I don't know. I think the fact that he repeats it throughout the book is just kind of, kind of symbolic of how many times he must have heard it throughout the process of making this book with itself. Um, I've said it 8 billion times now, but he took six years and had to watch the trial go through. And I cannot imagine, not fathom the way that the corner was probably brought up. And it's almost like it builds in a way. Um, it's it's kind of like foreshadowing in a way. Because when you reread the book, you know, as I was looking through some of my old annotations, the corner is just a phrase used over and over and over throughout the book. I mean, almost excessively so. And I think that that's almost his way of conveying how it loomed on him that they were going to death. You know, that he has written about this murder and he's devoted this much time into this case. And it all ends, but it also begins with the corner. And I think that the corner is kind of symbolic as a phrase within itself. You know, you put the kid in the corner when it's time out and that's so much more of a simple way of what this really is in the context of the book or when you come to the corner, it's like everything comes together in a corner, you know, all the walls meet in the corner. So it's a little ironic with the whole, you know, you put the kid in the corner thing, but it's also really meaningful. I think to me, as someone who's read the book, I could see where this would be something that I feel Capaldi would have used it for is that everything meets in the corner. Everything comes to a head in the corner. And the fact that the book ends not necessarily in the corner, it ends in the graveyard, but that that's the end of his story with these murderers, Dick and Perry. I think that's really symbolic in itself that everything he has worked for comes to the corner. And everything that they had worked for, no matter how flawless their plan might have been, ended in the corner. I feel like that's a really symbolic choice, whether he realized it or not throughout the process of the writing of the process of writing the book. But I think it does influence the way that you read it and you can see it. Um, I think that you can kind of see that he chooses to humanize um, Dick and Perry rather than villainize. I think that he kind of in my personal opinion, villainizes Dick more than he does Perry, which I found incredibly interesting because I myself found myself thinking, maybe he's not so bad. And logically, you know that they he killed an entire family. You know, that's, that's him. And I'm sure all kinds of other things that may not have made it into the book. But you still, you read about that fight with his dad over a biscuit biscuit and the way his sister writes to him and you think man that sucks you know and even the whole bonding with the squirrel thing it makes you feel for him you know you get almost attached to this man you've never met and you know has done heinous things but yet you can't help but feel personal and I think that comes back to Capote and having spent so much time with these people that they had to have felt 
something so close to him. And I think that the way that he wrote them as real people rather than just these objects of villainy reflects his time with them and how at some point I'm sure he had some sort of relationship with them to be able to get so much information out of them. And the different details he includes, like the variety of detail with each person, because, you know, it's not going to be as personal with Nancy as it is with Perry, because he never talked to Nancy, but he talked to Perry. And that reflects all throughout how he wrote his book. And I think that overall his experiences as a whole relate to the corner and how he personifies these people as a whole. And overall, I think that his life crossed with theirs to the point where it made that big of an impact on his writing. So, the different appeals. So we know about egos, logos, and pathos. And honestly, I really think that above all, he appeals to your sense of pathos, which may not make sense in the context of it's a book about a murder, but I think it does. So when I first started reading the book, I was in the pool, you know, I'm chilling. I've decided I'm going to have like a pool day. I'm going to read my summer reading. Finally, I've got like a month of summer left. It didn't get done to like the week before, but you know, I had a month of summer left. It's like, you know, let me get this done. Get into the book. Nancy dies. And when I tell you I was so mad, I shut the book and didn't open it for another three weeks after. That right there. That is pathos. I was already like 10 pages deep in the book feeling like, man, Nancy just like me for real. Like, I loved Nancy. She's baking cherry pie with the freaking neighbor's kid. Like, she is the all-American girl. I'm obsessed. Like, I, I just want to read about her. And I want to read about her horse and her cat that she likes to kiss on the nose. Like, she's so human. She's so real. You feel for her. You feel when, like, I got physically angry when it talked about Dick thinking about her in a sexual way. Like, absolutely not. No, that is my girl, you know? And connecting to that, you know, when Perry steps in and says, hey, bro, you cannot do that. I liked Perry in that moment. You know, I liked Perry whenever he said, maybe we shouldn't do this. It appeals to your sense of emotion. You feel these people like you've known them. And I think that goes back to Capote. The Capote. Feeling like he'd known them his whole life because of how much work he put in. And that reflects so much throughout. How he makes you relate to them. How he makes you feel for them. Despite what they may have done. Despite that you'll never meet them. Despite in our case that everyone he wrote about is dead. One way or another. We feel for them and I don't think that that's just an appeal thing as I've said before I think that goes back to how much work went into actually writing this book that it affects the reader in ways that we may not even think about I don't really think that he really goes after credibility 
I don't think he intentionally does. Of course, if you know the context behind the book, you know that he's credible. You know he's done this research. But when you read the book, you don't know that. And really, logic... There's not really any logic placed throughout either. When you know the context, of course you're going to have these appeals. But to the average reader, just picking it up is something to read. I think pathos is where it really is. I think that that sense of emotion is where Capote really drives the reader home with relating and feeling. I think that that's the most convincing part of this book is that you feel like you know them. And I think that's a reason why some books just aren't as readable. You don't feel like you know them. The characters don't feel rude. As I lay dying. <clears throat> I mean, but seriously though, like, you feel like you know them. And I think that's something that's beautifully done throughout the book. And time for the last stop on my rubric. Tone. Okay. Deciding on a tone was so hard. And then I remembered I can say tone shift. And then I was like, oh, okay. Beginning of the book, as I was kind of talking about before, we're introduced to Nancy and the Clutter family as a whole. And it's talking about how he loves his apple trees like he loves his kids, you know, maybe even more. And he loves his house and, you know, kind of his wife, which, by the way, I really, I wholeheartedly thought the wife was going to go absolutely insane and kill the family. And I was so ready for it. And then it was not. It's a little disappointing. But anyways, you get introduced to this family. And the tone's like, it's it's this nuclear family, you know? You got the daughter with the cherry pie and the son with the, I'm building a chest for my sister's wedding, you know? And, you know, the boyfriend. And, you know, you just... I feel like there's not really, like, a word other than, like, classy, in a way. Like, when you think that nuclear family, that idea of perfect or subtle, I would say. I would say it's a subtle way of class. I think that Capote really does do a really good job of introducing these characters and the way that they were, preserving that memory of the upper class family that's wealthy. And you kind of feel like this tone kind of just of not necessarily joy, but calm. Everything is calm. And he slowly adds those details that make it a little bit more unsettling, like uh, not necessarily even unsettling, but it ruins this image and it kind of shifts you over. The best word I could think of is really unsettling. Um, and like I said, that's not really even the best word for it. But it's the closest thing. It's like this perfect is disturbed to make room for like her dad doesn't like her boyfriend. She's overwhelmed. Um, you learn about like her best friend's family life is a little weird. You learn about Mrs. Clutter and all of her different you know, issues, and you're like, okay, this is a little, a little distorted, I think would be a better word. A little distorted. And then the other shoe drops, and they're dead. And I think that's when it takes the biggest turn into mystery. And it's not, 
that's something so weird about this book is that even though it was so clear where it was going, it wasn't. You would ask me from the beginning, I would have told you that it was going to be Dick and Perry murdering the Clutter family. But at the same time, the shadow of my mind told me that it was this person or that person. Like I said, my re leading thought for a good amount of time, because I had put that book down, was that Mrs. Clutter was going to go absolutely insane and just go off. And it wasn't. And not only do I think that that's unique, I think that that is part of where that tone shifts. I think that that is where we see the divergence from this little bit off to this just all of a sudden abrupt somber, I would say. Because the Clutter family is dead and no one knows what to do. And I think the crazy thing is, is while that's going on, it's this confusing, distorted, almost altered state of reality for these people whose lives have been so perfect. Everyone's locking their doors now. Neighbor against neighbor. It's crazy. Suburbia is disrupted. Dick and Perry are going to Mexico. Like, I mean, what? You have just inserted mass tragedy on this small town. And you're on your way to Mexico to go make a little bit of cash. See some girls. Drink your root beer and eat your aspirin. And this town is in total disarray. And I think that that's where the tone diverges for the rest of the book. I think that you now can see the shift. And I think what's so ironic <coughs> is that during this time period, we're seeing this divergence between the two timelines and these two different tones to Dick and Perry are going to die. And there's clearance in the air. There is revelation in the air. There is peace back in the air. And it's back to quiet suburbia. And what's so weird about that is, is that it will never be that same calm that we see in the beginning. Because there's always going to be that shadow of the doubt. Bobby's never going to move on from his high school girlfriend that got brutally murdered in her own home. That's just not how that works. It's not that simple. Despite the momentary calm, the storm will never really leave. It's like when Hurricane Katrina hit. The storm may have left, but the damage has been done. It's there. You're not going to recover from that immediately. You're stuck. Well, now that that's over, I think it's time for some closing thoughts. And I'm tired, so I really think it's time for some closing thoughts. So, big daddy question of the night. Would I recommend this book? Probably not. Which is crazy because I've talked good about it, right? Well, wrong. This book was, like, too long to be a casual read. And that's coming from someone who read it for funsies. Okay? Like, I'm a reading nerd. But as I get older... Things like this, you know, I think it would be kind of cool to, like, watch a movie about it. But I just don't really have the time. And I think it gets kind of dry and slow at points. And, you know, if you're looking at the overarching and, like, you're in a analyzing it and, like, doing the whole nine yards, like, you're not going to see it that way. And it's going to be great and wonderful. But you know what? 
like I said, when Nancy died, man, I put the book down and I did not plan on picking it back up. It made me so mad. Okay. Like he's a good writer and that's what makes me so angry because I loved her so much. And I think that's the only reason why I'm saying don't read the book, but just, I don't know if you like Nance, don't read the book. And I feel like I knew her so well too. That's really my only complaint. Kind of long. And I like Nancy. And I felt really weird, like, Loki sympathizing with Perry at times. And then, you know, I wasn't going to put this in, like, my, like, graded part, because I feel like this is, like, more like a stylistic thing. But between you and me, Miss Fisher, if you're even listening still. Oh, my gosh. I was doing research, and it's talking about how, like, Perry and Truman freaking Capaldi liked each other. What? It was bonkers, Miss Fisher, okay? But anyways, I wouldn't recommend it. I don't like Dick. Um, I think it's really weird that he liked little girls. Um, Justice for Nancy. And I really hope you give me a pretty high A for this because it took a lot of time and effort. And I didn't have a script, so I really hope I hit all my points. And um, if you're not Miss Fisher and you're still listening, Why? Okay, well, good night. Um, I had Chick Fil A for dinner, and I will maybe see you again next year if I have to do this assignment again. If not, thank you everyone for listening to the final Miss Fisher's yearly podcast summer reading assignment extravaganza. Good night. Okay, JK, I just looked at the time, and remember how I said I was going to, like, hit, like, a solid nine? I'm sorry, Miss Fisher. We're back with another 30-minute podcast. I love you so much. Miss um, Loki, me kissing up, because I didn't think that it would go this long, but I did hit everything on the rubric. I made sure. Um, love you, little fish. Um, also, hi, Mary-, Mary Claire, like, in the Fisher family, if y'all are listening. I love me, Miss Fisher. This also Loki attests to if you actually listened. But yeah, okay, this is actually the end now. But I don't know. I thought it was kind of funny that I told you I was going to hit like nine minutes. And here I am back at 30. But had to relive my freshman year glory days. Yeah. Okay, for real though. Bye. I swear it's over. Kind of. Oh, thank you.